picture credit to Springer Hyatt on that one. Thank you very much for Springer. I think it's great that um, Chris couldn't figure out exactly how his dog doing bad things is his fault. And the reason why is because there's something really true about it, but something really odd about it. And, and, and this is why we've got to, this is what the passage actually explores today. The relationship between creation, not living out like it's supposed to, the relationship with us, and the relationship with God. It's kind of a fascinating thing. And, and this will be a passage in, in a sermon today that I, I'm really going to try to ask you to love the Lord your whole God with your mind on this one, to, to spend some work with your mind and imagination here. Because we're going to try to, in some ways, connect deadly hurricanes and Adam and Eve. And human destruction from earthquakes and or tornadoes and our relationship with God. And it's going to take work. That creation, God, the creator, and humans are in a deeply connected relationship. Before I start, though, I want you to know that I'm not speaking as an environmental scientist or a geologist or a biologist or a meteorologist. There are wonderful people who know 50,000 times more about that stuff than I do. I'm also not speaking as an activist, per se. There are many, many, many things that I think we humans could and should do to change, about our, change uh, our relationship with God's creation. But I'm, an am, I'm less than an amateur at stuff like that. And I don't pretend to know all the solutions for us to enjoy, tend to, protect, and live in right relationship with God's good creation. And I certainly can't tell you like what policy changes or any of that stuff. I just, that ain't my thing. And I'm not here to try to speak as if the, all this life was kind of swirled into one and somehow God and his creation and us are, are all kind of tied together in kind of a blob. The Bible does talk about all of matter mattering, and yet the Bible doesn't seem to believe that all of matter matters equally. And nothing matters more than the glory and brilliance and majesty of God. But I do come to you as a Bible teacher, a theologian, pastor, and I do know a little bit about these things, at least as they are presented to us in the scriptures, and hope to preach to you a little about how this creation, his creation, and our redemption are somehow connected. First, I want to be clear and just kind of get the taxonomy or get the, 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 the map right about how we talk about this. From a biblical perspective, humans are part of creation, right? We're created, we're creatures, right? We're the highest of that creation, but yet we're part of it as well. The height of creation, the scripture places us above kingdom animalia and whatever you say about plants, plantalia or I don't know, plantae or whatever, which gives us, and, and I've said before and we've taught a zillion times and, and children's ministry teaches this, that when God created humans, he gave them not just one thumbs up, but two thumbs up good, right? Very good. And so we're the crown of God's innovative labors in the world, the vice regents, part of the royal governing of the rest of creation. That's what we are. And we're such a, um, such a, at the height of this kind of creation that in our passage today, it actually distinguishes us from creation to some degree. But yet, we are still created, right? I loved it when one of my seminary professors said, of course we share 98% of DNA with orangutans. We're all earthlings created, 
will always have those same traits as things of the earth. So we're part of Animalia, and at the top of it, and our job is to bear the image of God in that. Now, by the way, I just want you to know, do you know they've made up more kingdoms since I was in elementary school? Do you know this? There's like three more. I'm really frustrated by this. First, Pluto. And, and then they started with a bunch of elements in the periodic table that they just made up. I know, they just made them up in a, you know, a test tube or something. I don't know how you make up elements, but they did. And now, kingdoms, there's archaic. Anyway, this is not part of the sermon. But it's a conspiracy against my elementary education. I just want everyone to know that. God, us, creation. The catechism says he made it all things. And he made us in particular to bear his image, to translate his life, his, his way of being, to, to, to mirror how he wants the world to work, how he wants it governed in us. And creation responds to our leadership. This is a little bit about the dog. Violent breeds of dog have been bred or mistrained or untrained. So it says that creation waits. And it's a really, really interesting passage or term here. A cool term says it's eagerly longing, right? And, and, uh, and the, I think it's the next slide. There, there's a creation waits, waits eagerly. Yeah, there you go. And, and this is the image that is so cool. It's, um, it's one that's translated or, um, by many uh, uh, commentators of, of being on your tiptoes. It has that connotation to it. So it's waiting, it's anticipating something, not necessarily anxiously, but anticipatory-wise, it's just waiting for something to happen, for, for, for a glory to be revealed. It's on its tiptoes, right? Creation's on its tiptoes. So Springer and I went to a concert a couple of weeks ago where we were almost two hours early, and we were waiting, and we were waiting, and uh, she and her friend were about 20 people back. I can't really say it was rows, because it was more like a mosh pit than it was anything that, that looked like a row. Um, and... Uh, you know, they're sitting there waiting, they're trying to peek over with other, te- other teenagers, and there's the first opening band, which is kind of a hype band, and then there's, um, then there's the second band, which I thought was really amazing, but I was also sitting uh, comfortably on my chair in the side. Um, but, then the, but, but what everybody was waiting for was for Tyler, the creator, to show up, right? And uh, so he's bending up and over, they're all looking for this, and then he comes out in this ridiculous blue suit with this ridiculous wig, and he just comes out and stands there like this, and everybody's lost their mind. And then the first beat hits, and a thousand, maybe four thousand kids start doing this, doom, doom, doom. It was amazing. They were all on their tiptoes awaiting this concert to start. I was not in the mosh pit, just in case you're wondering. Um, But she and her buddy were just sitting there enjoying it, and it was crazy and wonderful. And that is a picture of creation waiting eagerly for something to happen. It's on its tiptoes. Here's the deal, though. Creation isn't waiting in an air-conditioned place with merch on the side. Creation is waiting amid horrible pain, danger, brokenness, cruelty, hatefulness, a sinful world. And and we have glimpses of what it's supposed to be like. Y'all, that sunset two days ago, 
You remember that? Did you see that thing? It was unbelievable. There are sweet and true, beautiful glimpses of God's creative glory. And they, they almost hurt worse when you feel like how cruel the world is. Because you know what you long for. How welcome has the rain been these last couple days? It's been wonderful. But the glimpses actually create more of a longing. In fact, Scripture says toward the end here that it creates a groaning in creation. These images are amazing, right? Like creation is personified here, waiting on tiptoe, and then groaning as if in childbirth. The, the, the creation is churning in pain. Next time you hear of an earthquake, I want you to think of it as a groan. This is the imaginative space you need to have, a groan for creation to be longing for a different rain over it. Next time you see a destructive wildfire, fire, think of it as a crying out. I gave you a picture of my azalea bush, um, and it's groaning. If you look down there, um, if you look down on the bottom right, the one that looks really dead there, there's another plant. That's actually a gift that was given to Amanda that she... Um, she made beautiful, and I think she separated it and brought one part of it over there. And right now, unless something miraculous happens, I done killed it. I mean, I really did. And this is a gift to Amanda. She was tending to creation well, and then I was not. And it's not always something that you necessarily do. Like, th- like here's the next picture of my front yard for the last six weeks. (laughs) That's not directly my responsibility, but you could feel it. You could see your grass. If you had any attention to what your life was like or what the earth was doing, you could hear it like dying for water, right? It was bad. And then there are things that are more our fault, like acid rain makes trees groan, right? Next slide. And also things like pollution. You see a picture here. This is a floating island. And there's a zillion islands like this in the middle of the Pacific Ocean where the currents have brought it in. And that, that little zillion sets of islands is the size of Texas. They're wondering if it's the size of two Texases. Human garbage. And, it, and if you need it closer to home or closer to home for me, the beautiful islands of Hawaii. Next one. The one on the right is about two hours from where my dad grew up on the the big island. The one on the left is about two hours from where he lived in Oahu. That's it. Some of that stuff's from Japan. Some of that stuff's from the U.S. It's just creation groaning. Right? And again, it's not all of our own doing or anything like that. There are just wildfires that happen. Look at this amazing picture where humans are on the outside just trying to see. This is overwhelming. By the way, this website, um, if you buy the pictures for 20 bucks, they use it all to replant. So uh, Google that somewhere. That's not really a plug. It's just really cool that people are doing that. And Paul gives us this image that, that, that it's groaning and it's been um, unwillingly subject to futility. Now, please hear me. I'm not saying that all volcanoes and hurricanes or fires are products of the fall. I don't know how plate tectonics works before the fall. Like, I just don't, I'm not trying to do that. But I do know the destruction and the, the wreaking of havoc that happens, especially to human life and other life, is part of the fall. 
Does that make sense? Okay. When they're devastating people, and I'm also not saying that God doesn't use all of it redemptively. He, in fact, does. He's kind of in the business of that. But they are not as they were made. Like bed bugs. Like why? <laughs> there is a rat in my basement. Why? I'm groaning now, not just creation. Gnats exist. I'm pretty sure that's not, that, there's got to be some abnormality. Cats. Not cats, but their bad attitudes for sure are a product of the fall. <laughs> what I'm saying is, and what creationists says, that the very core of creation is disordered, and it knows it. And it's waiting and groaning. And if you listen, you'll hear the birds sing of it. So how and when did this happen? Almost Unanimously, scholars say that the one who subjected it to futility was God. And this phrase is actually taking us to Genesis 3 in the fall and the curse that's given to Adam that the, that the, the thorns and the thistles would be his problem, right? That the, the, the ground would be cursed for him in his labors. It was not going to be easy for him. And in some ways, from that point on, that humanity would have an alienated, if not combative, relationship with creation. And think about it, though. It's brilliant. It is a completely just punishment. The fall was literally a misuse of God's creation. It was actually eating vegetation that was not allowed to be eaten. And so now he makes vegetation frustrating for Adam and Eve. So because of Adam and Eve's disobedience, rebellion against the goodness of the creator, the creator of creation, the land, the earth itself, would always be frustrating to them. It would be futile. They wouldn't get it to work the way they wanted it to. And God subjected creation to futility both through the curse and through let us, letting us continue to govern it even after our fallen relationship with God. And so it's always a bad idea when you're rebellions against God to govern anything. I speak from personal experience here. But that's also true. And so in one sense, it's double cursed because we're still in charge of it. But it's true that also God does this for a purpose and with a promise, and it's really important. The purpose here, and I want you to really lean into this as part of the imagination of the brain work you need to be doing here and that we need to be doing here, is that part of your frustration and experience of, of creation groaning out, part of that is that we would take a really deeply humble, low road in relationship to these things. That it would remind us how we got here. That we would be able to embrace with a kind of deep repentance that things aren't the way they're supposed to be because our reign has been radically corrupt. So creation's futility should humble us. Like, in one sense, the rat, it's not my fault directly. You know, it's not like I have a rat in the house because, you know, I yelled at Carver this morning. You know, it's not one-to-one, -one, unless you put that thing in. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I just got to thinking now. Uh, you know, I had, a, I had, a, I had a, a, a nail in my tire. That's not because I didn't have a quiet time, you know? 
But those things, all of creation, things don't work. And, and we keep going, we should be able to fix this. We should be able to stop this. And what I'm saying is, hey, yeah, we should be fighting against all the places of the fall and be reminded. Be reminded. Take a humbler approach to it all. It's a deeply theological reality that does not need overlooking. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. And we have participated in that. And yet there's this amazing promise that occurs, a promise of hope, that means that we will not misuse creation or creation will not be our combatant forever. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain a certain kind of freedom. And, and the bondage and corruption is our bondage and corruption over it. God brought futility to it. We brought bondage to it. So under God's curse of futility, it's bad, but under our reign over it, it becomes bondage and corruption. And the creation is, uh, is longing to, for, it to, for us to treat it better, if you will. And it's longing to obtain, the language here, the glory of the children of God. And this is where the passage pivots. How will the groaning stop? What exactly is creation waiting for? Creation is waiting for, read this, 19, for creation waits with eager, eager longing for the revealing of God's glory. Is that what it says? No. The revealing of the sons of God. Creation is, of course, God's glory is manifest in us being sons of God, but what creation is doing, what it's tiptoeing for, is to see what our redemption would look like. Because in it, us as its caretakers will then rightly be ordered as well. I think that's fascinating. A tiptoed anticipation of how we might be redeemed. It's looking for us to be real, revealed as we were made. It's looking for the, our rebellion against God to cease and the rift between God and humanity to be healed so that it might have a chance to be freed itself. My great graphic design again. God uses us to care for creation, right? Creation is groaning, needs us to make it right. And for that to happen, we need God to make us right. That's the flip. And again, if you need to hire me as a graphic designer, I'm glad to do that on the side. Um, creation is waiting with groans and hope but that's what it says for us. And they're so connected together that creation itself will be set free from, from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God that it almost equates the glory of the children of God with its own glory. And that's really weird and takes some time to meditate on. Creation's liberation is tied to our liberation. In fact, so much that they're equated here. That somehow creation's going to experience the freedom of the glory of the children of God. I, don't, I, don't, I can't help you there. That needs work and meditation. Somehow these are together. And you know this as you read the scriptures. Think about the whole story of the Bible. What redemption looks like. It almost always mentions a right relationship with God with each other and with creation. A land flowing with milk and honey, the center of the Old Testament promise. 
plenty in their storehouses for themselves and their neighbors. Fine wine and the richest of fare. Think about the pictures of a lion and lamb together. Like, I don't know exactly how that works. Of how the dangers of the sea are no more. Where famine and plague are gone. Those are the pictures of us with God in the new heavens and the new earth. They're all there together. A garden and a city filled with human innovation and God-ordained beauty. And those were all made right because of the power of God to bring about a redemption of people. Which brings us to this last point. How did this happen? How does God do this revealing How do we obtain the glory of the children of God? And Scripture says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And I can't help but think back to that Genesis 3 passage. Now, that means, just so you know, um, that, and I've I've never experienced childbirth, but I've seen it. Um, And um, it means very clearly that the pain and pain creation is going through will find it worth it like in childbirth. That's what that means. But it also is an illusion because we've been in Genesis 3, an illusion to the very curse about having pain in childbirth. The curse on the ground, the, chain in the, the, the pain in childbirth, the real pain in a, in a non-epidural childbirth, that pain will, will be worth something. Let me read to you the curses that he gives Adam, Eve, and the serpent. The serpent first, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity, animosity between you, the serpent, and the woman, between your offspring, serpent's offspring, and her, the woman's offspring. And you shall bru- he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And then to the woman he says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband and he will rule over you. And then he goes to Adam and he says, he says, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth, uh, bring, uh, forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For you out of it were taken for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. It feels like Paul's making all these allusions back to this child-rearing that's going to be deeply painful, but also bring forth a promised one. I think I've told you this before, but that 315 passage says, is called by theologians the um, Neo-Euangelion, or the Proto-Euangelion, the first gospel. A promise from the, from the moment of the fall that God would send forth from the womb of the woman one who would crush the serpent's head. Yes, the serpent will bruise the heel of the one sent. But he will crush the serpent's head. That's what you're getting in Romans 8. That's what you're getting 
It's, cre- it's somehow, and this is where I want your minds and hearts to explode in wonder and beauty, is, is that Jesus in his coming, his being God himself, coming into humanity as a human being, taking on that vice-regent role, even as king of all creation, the one who created all things, that he comes in here and submits himself to the subjugated creation. And he lives under it, but he also reigns over it with miracle after miracle after miracle. And he suffers from it, aging. And he lives under its horrific reign, where he is, in fact, brought to death. A death that everyone else deserved that he did not. And it's precisely from that death that comes a resurrection that reanimates all of creation. And that has started now and promised until that last day. The scripture says that, that it's, it's exposed now and yet we long for its fully fulfilled moment where Eve's offspring the fruit of Eve's womb, Jesus himself would reign. Creation has groaned for humanity to rightly reign over it. Jesus has come as a God-man, as the God-man to rightly reign over humanity and creation. And really, my only application for you is to meditate on this, to work your brain in it, your heart in it, to hear groanings differently with some deep humility when things don't work, some real patience, meditate on the cosmic, global, incredible claim that Jesus' death and resurrection satisfy the groaning of creation. And as we'll see next week, mind-blowingly, our groaning too, and not just our groaning, but the Spirit himself groans with us. I want you to meditate in this and soak in it so that you would have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Maybe that we would worship from clean hearts that in one day will create clean oceans. Let's pray.